an epic matchup between your two favorite teams, and you're at the game getting the most from what it means to be here with American Express. You breeze through the card member entrance, stop by the lounge. Now it's almost tip-off, and everyone's already on their feet. This is going to be good. That's the powerful backing of American Express. See how to elevate your live sports experience at americanexpress.com slash with Amex. Eligible American Express card required. Benefits vary by card and by venue. Terms apply. Support for this episode comes from Viator. Experiences are what people love the most about travel. That's why Viator has over 300,000 bookable experiences. So there's always something for everyone. They offer everything from simple tours to extreme adventures. Plus, Viator's travel experiences have millions of real traveler reviews, so you have the information you need to book the best activities for your trip. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. One app, over 300,000 travel experiences you'll remember. Do more with Viator. Hello and welcome to the Long Form Podcast. I'm Evan Ratliff. I am here with my co-hosts, Max Linsky and Guy Linsky. Hey, Evan. Hey, guys. Hey, Guy. You want to say hi? Okay. You put his <laughs> face close enough to the microphone, probably you're, you could hear something. He's very interested in the microphone. Guy, the microphone <laughs> has to stay here. Okay. Uh, Aaron's uh, away for the holiday. Aaron's in Los Angeles. Aaron's in Los Angeles. So, Aaron's having a good time. Uh, it's just the three of us yeah. here now. Aaron's in Los Angeles. Daycare is closed. It's the holidays. All right. Let's get this done. Okay. Evan, who'd you have on the show this week? I I had on the show this week Doug McGray, who is the uh, founder and editor-in-chief of California Sunday Magazine, uh, which if you don't know, you should know. Uh, It's distributed in all the California newspapers, and it's also online. And uh, it was nominated for a National Magazine Award after only three issues uh, last year. That's, I guess, one way to judge its success. It also had three stories on this year's long-form best of 2015. So very impressive. Yeah, they do amazing work. Uh, It also looks incredible. Uh, Full disclosure, Doug and I are very old friends. We also uh, work together on a thing called Pop-Up Magazine, which is a live show that's part of California Sunday's uh, little California media empire. Uh, I used to work on that. Doug founded it. And... uh, also, California Sunday Magazine uses uh, the Atavis platform to do all of their digital stuff. So there's a lot of there's a lot of intertwined interests here. Th- this is the most disclosure episode we'll ever have. Yeah, you you take it take you, it that way. You and Doug are uh, you're very intertwined. But at the same time, uh, I think he has a lot of interesting things to say, both about his own path to uh, being a founder of a magazine uh, and what it takes to do so, and what they're up to. I was totally listening to you. I was not in any way corralling a child off the floor. Uh, uh, guy, what about sponsors this week? Guy, do you have any sponsors? Why did you say something? No? Yeah. Okay. That'll work. <laughs> if you're looking for a great new podcast, Guy, to entertain you on your holiday travels, why don't you check out the Smart People podcast? The Smart People podcast was named one of the top 100 podcasts of 2014 by Digital Trends. Each episode contains an intriguing conversation with some of the smartest people on earth. Uh, one to check out, Zappos CEO, Tony Shea. He was on the show. Join hmm. uh, the millions that have downloaded Smart People podcast. Head over to iTunes. Check it out. Thanks to them for sponsoring the show. If you want to tell people about your podcast, they recommend that you use MailChimp. They are a sponsor of this week's show, as they are every week. Uh, MailChimp, 8 million-plus businesses use it to get the word out via email about what they're up to. Atavist uses it. 
Longform uses it. You should use it. We thank them for their sponsorship. Here's Evan with Doug McRae. Doug McRae, welcome to the podcast. Thank you for having me. You and I have been friends for uh, a decade, and uh, we have shared many common projects and things like that. So I want to get into those. It's interesting. I mean, I think back to some of the early days before before you started Datavist, before I started Pop-Up Magazine with you and Derek and Lauren and the gang, and before we started California Sunday. A lot of these were, were late-night conversations about half-formed ideas, and what if we did this, and what if we did that? And then it's kind of crazy to, to see how it kind of snowballed from there. One interesting thing about knowing you as a freelancer and a writer you know, in the mid-2000s, I always felt like you had a defined set of goals to your freelancing. Like you wrote about specific types of things. You wrote about poverty, you wrote about youth, and you wrote about social issues. Like I'm kind of curious how that developed. Most everyone I knew, including myself, was sort of like, I'll take a story, I need this story, I'll do that story. And you seem to be more directed, and I'm curious where that started. Yeah, I mean, it, it started back when I was living in D.C. So, you know, I started out as a, as a young editor at, at Foreign Policy magazine. Mm-hmm. And when I started there, it was a, it was a quarterly journal, uh, a black and white journal, an academic journal with very small circulation, wasn't really on the web. And what we were working on over the period of about three years is to turn it into something more like a general interest magazine. And when I left there, I dove into magazine writing. Uh, not actually, not, I, I didn't think it was going to be my career, actually. Um, hmm. I, mostly I wanted, to, I wanted to be an editor at a more general interest magazine. And I figured people have a short attention span, so I'll go freelance for six months or a year or something and, and, and do some, get some different kinds of clips, write some different kinds of stories, and then reinsert at a, at a, at a more general interest magazine. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I kept, kept making the next month's rent and kept finding another story. And without really planning to, the next thing I knew, I realized, like, this is actually what you do now. This is not, this, you're, not you're not preparing for your next job. You, <laughs> you actually are a writer. You lost the thread on, on getting back into a magazine? Yeah, it's, 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 I, there, there should be some sort of, some sort of uh, writer board where, where if, you've, if you've made your rent for so many months in a row writing, then you get a certificate in the mail saying, congratulations, <laughs> you're, you you're a writer this. now. Yeah. At the start, I did write about, you know, whatever caught my eye. It would be, it would be something super pop. It would be, it would be something just sort of curious and nerdy. It just, just whatever came in my path that that caught my attention. And at the same time, I was starting to write for magazines that reached more people, um, and start to write for magazines that had really good editors and would would put a lot of care into the crafting of things and. It snuck up on me one day. I, I realized that when I wrote something, a lot of people would read it. This is interesting how you, you kind of don't think about that at certain times. Like you're no. just focused on getting the work and doing the work. Like the idea of what the audience is for it sometimes is so mediated by the magazine anyway. I mean, forget about the idea of an audience, even the idea of coworkers, the idea of anybody else in the world. You definitely, you know, you wake up, you make your coffee, you walk to your desk. You don't, you maybe not, don't get out for days at a time. <laughs> and, and the idea that you're doing this for an audiences can get really abstract. I think it's different now because of social media and because the web is so much more responsive and because there's 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 a conversation around stuff. I I, I think you 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 have a sense that people are reading stuff, you hear from people, they like stuff, they don't like stuff, but 
But but back in those days, back in those days, we should be sitting on a porch <laughs> whittling or something. Um, I'll, I'll do the I'll do the like old man, <laughs> old man rocking chair thing. That's fine. No, it it sort of it it would sometimes seem like you you wrote a piece and then you put it in an envelope and then dropped it into a well. <laughs> um, but but once you know, I started thinking about the fact that that people read this and like a lot of people at this point. And I remember reading this like very, very small news in brief thing in the Washington Post, a print copy of the Washington Post. Um, and it was probably a paragraph long. And it was about some report about detention at the border of uh, undocumented, uh, unaccompanied minors uh-huh. and what happens to them. And I couldn't believe that this story was a paragraph. You know, it seemed to me just a failure of imagination. It seemed to me that it should be a, a long story. It's, I wanted to spend time in that world. I wanted to know about this stuff. And at the time, I think, I don't remember what I was working on, but, but all I remember is a, is, a, is a feeling that it was really trivial. Um, <laughs> so it was probably pretty trivial. And I thought, you know, you have, you have an audience and you're not even bothering to think about what you, what you do with that. And so I made a pretty hard turn where, where after that point, I was still really interested in things that were entertaining and I was interested in stories. I wanted to appeal to people in the same way that a movie does or that a novel does. That it's not something that you're reading because you need to seem smart the next time you're at a dinner party or it's not something that you're you're reading to make you a better person that, mm-hmm. that it's something that you're reading for entertainment but within that framework I wanted to explore tough issues um, and I wanted to take people into the lives of people whose lives are not like theirs I started being very careful about the stories that I'd pick and I started walking by a lot of stuff and, and I would say no to a lot of offers of assignments, which which was probably pretty dumb financially. Um, but I just felt like one of the great things about freelancing is is you you wake up and then you you can have a lot of control over how you spend your time. I wanted to feel like I was spending my time in a worthwhile way. That these stories weren't necessarily activist stories. I, I I wouldn't say that about them at all actually, but but that that I wanted to to use the forum and use what I did all day to help people understand things that mm-hmm. I thought were important. Mm-hmm. I mean, you said you walked by opportunities and that was maybe financially dumb, but it was it does constrain your livelihood to only be able to find those stories, partly because I think what was so interesting to me about it is those stories are actually, in a weird way, they're all around us. Poverty, education, like things that are actually truly important, but they're also hard to make the kind of story that you're describing, which is entertaining and doesn't feel like it's like eating your broccoli or, or what have you. Did you feel like that you could make a career out of that at that point? I did. And it, it helped that I didn't have extravagant lifestyle tastes. <laughs> um, I was, I was I happy, verify that. I was happy living pretty simply. I got a lot of satisfaction out of the work. And so uh, it added up to a living as long as I, I mean, I had to be careful about how much money I spent and um, I had to be uh, thoughtful about looking for grants and and other things that could subsidize projects because sometimes sometimes stories like this take a long time. I mm-hmm. mean, you'll you'll. I remember a piece, uh, you know, writing a piece where where I was spending a fair amount of time with mentally ill homeless people mm-hmm. who would disappear for a month. Right. You can't rush it. You can't assume that anybody's going to think it's in their interest to spend time with you. You you can't assume that anything that you're going to do is going to make their life at all better. You have to be really careful and really respectful, and, and oftentimes introductions are really important. So, you know, I would I would sometimes 
take a reporting trip, not an expensive reporting trip, but but if I was reporting a story in LA, I might go to LA for a week and it wasn't, I was barely even reporting. Mostly what I was doing is just trying to be seen and trying to be around and, and, and get introductions to people and get people's cell phone numbers and then text them a bit. And, and, and so it was just slow. So that, that's, that's definitely tough. There are magazine assignments where you can do a few interviews and turn them around in a couple of weeks, and, and they can be pretty long, and they can pay pretty well, and I wasn't doing a lot of that. But I liked the work I was doing. I, I remember this story you did. It was when there was an LA Times uh, Sunday magazine, and they had just sort of relaunched it and did this story that was basically about, it was about Dream Act kids in a way, and like this character, the character, this woman who had gone to college and like had all these aspirations and then couldn't proceed uh, because she wasn't a citizen. With that type of story, I mean, that felt like something that it was, again, like in the news in this way, but you didn't really hear about the people. You didn't really hear their voices. How do you, how did you go about sort of finding that, the character? It's, it's funny. It's, uh, I found that story the way that I've found a lot of stories, which is a throwaway remark by somebody. I was talking mm. to somebody who I can't remember whether it was an advocate or an academic type or somebody. I was talking to somebody in LA about immigration in general, immigration policy. I think I was actually fishing around for a story, but I was just asking, like, you know, what have you been? What have you been noticing? What's changing? What's and uh, as as an aside, the person mentioned the undocumented immigrant club at UCLA, and I mm. said, what do, what do you mean a club? Like a like a club, like the ultimate Frisbee club. And he said, yeah, you know, they, it's a, it's a club. They have a, an office on campus and a mailbox. And, um, and I just became really curious about that. And I, and I realized that there had been a law in California where uh, undocumented students uh, could qualify for in-state tuition, but that then when you graduated, there was no real path to citizenship. So it was this odd case of state policy and federal policy kind of working at cross purposes. Or if they weren't working at cross purposes, they definitely weren't aligned. Mm -hmm. The first class of students who had qualified for in-state tuition, was it, they were coming into their senior year. And I was really curious what would happen to them because it's, it's you know, you, I think like a lot of kids, you know, if you're, if you're in college, you know, your freshman year, your sophomore year, your junior year, maybe a lot of your senior year, unless you're unless you're like very ambitious and driven, you're not really thinking about what's next all that much. You're just going to college and dealing with college kid things, and you know these students were dealing with all those things plus a lot more. But what would they do afterwards? But what they do work? afterwards, and and so I wanted to follow them on and off through their senior year, partly to illuminate this tension between state policy and federal policy, but I didn't really want to write a policy piece. I mostly wanted to see how these kids were going to make sense of their future when it became immediate. And I got pretty close to the kids over the course of the year. It was interesting and pretty heartbreaking getting towards the end of their senior year. Everyone else they knew, all their friends, uh, except for their friends in this club, which is why the club ended up being pretty important to them. All their other friends, you know, it says their horizons are opening up and they're deciding what they're going to do next in the world, what they're going to be, how they're going to make money, where they're going to live. And these students, most of whom were not out to their friends as, as undocumented, were, were seeing their world get smaller and smaller and smaller. Mm -hmm. So I, I, I wrote a pretty long piece about them. And it was also This American Life. Yeah. And that it's, it's the piece, it's how I got into radio, actually, which ended up becoming hugely influential on me. It's, it's, it totally turned my career, frankly. You, you know, you never, you never really know where a story is going to take you in the writing of it or even in your experience of writing it. 
So it, it, it ended up becoming a This American Life piece later. How did that happen? Because of you, actually. Really? Did you know, do you remember that? No. We were... <laughs> that sounds like I set you up for that. But I, I still have, I don't know what you're talking about. We were at El Rio, which is a bar in San Francisco yeah. with, a, with a big back patio that's great on the three to five warm evenings a year. Is it still there, El Rio? It is still oh, there. Thank God. It's a great bar. Yeah. And so we were there on this warm night. I was talking about this, this that piece, which was called The Invisibles. I was talking about it because it was a year later, and there were some bills coming up in a new legislative cycle. And I kind of wanted to, I, I wanted to put the reporting back in circulation somehow. Uh, there had been some bills and nothing had really happened the year before. And, and you know, I'd spent a lot of time on this piece. I, this is probably a, a personal feeling, but I always had a really hard time ever writing a second piece about something. I think that I actually feel like that's pretty common, like that you really feel it's exhausting to do a piece as long as the one that you're talking about. And you just kind of, you sort of run out of gas on like keeping up with it. And also you feel like you know, I, I wrote the piece that I wanted to write, and now it's time for other people. Mm-hmm. You know, it's I, I don't I don't want to monopolize the conversation, and and uh, it's just really easy to imagine whatever else you would do being really derivative or or a lesser version of it. And I didn't want to do a lesser version of it, and so I was talking about this to you um, on the back porch at El Rio, and you said, uh, "What about doing a radio piece?" And I said, "I don't know how to do radio," and you said, "This American Life." Uh, works with people who don't know how to do radio. And I had never heard that before. I knew that because I had unsuccessfully pitched This American Life, I think. And someone had told me, (laughs) I had asked someone about pitching them, and they'd said, it's okay if you don't know anything about radio. They they send a producer or something that can help you uh, actually do the recordings. I remember that part. I I have no recollection of telling you (laughs) that. Why did I tell you that? That was a big mistake, because then you went on to be really successful This American Life. I still never had anything on this one. <laughs> <laughs> so I, I, I thought that was a great idea because there is, there is nothing I love more than something I don't know how to do. Um, <laughs> so it, it's, it's also, it's a great, it's a great way to make your career really interesting and harder than it needs to be. Just try um, new things that you have no expertise in. Exactly. Yeah. So I, I pitched them a story and, and I said, I, you know, I wrote this long piece, a year has passed, I could do a radio piece come at some of the basic plot, but in a different way, because a, a radio story is different. It's so conversation-based, even though there's a fair amount of dialogue in my in my print piece, it's just different. And then also a year had passed, so we could see, it, it could actually be updated in a, in a meaningful way. Because mm-hmm. now these students had been out in the world for, for a year. And I actually, I'd sort of stayed in touch with a couple of them, a couple of them I hadn't, I, I didn't know what they were all doing. Um, and so I pitched this to This American Life, thinking, I don't know. Evan said you don't have to know how to do radio. And just pitch them. This this sound. I'm skeptical, but it's not that hard to write a pitch. Um, so I, I sent the pitch, and then I went snowboarding, and then I got back from snowboarding at the end of the day, and they said uh, we'd like to assign it, and we actually it it it, it filled a hole in a show that they had that was coming up soon, Ah. which is a thing that that happens when you make theme-based issues or or shows, basically. It would finish the the episode, which meant they needed it immediately. So they flew me from the airport in Reno, outside Lake Tahoe, to LA, and they shipped the radio gear FedEx to my cheap motel. Uh, And so there was this big box that was- That that you did not know how to operate. Oh, it's. It, I open it up and I see what basically looks like 
So a, a, a microphone that's way longer than, than it seems to need to be. And then what to me looked like a clock radio, basically, um, <laughs> which it turns out is what expensive recording gear looks like. It, it, it's a clock radio, basically. Now they're, they're smaller and, and fancier now, but, but I still have one that looks like a clock radio. And, you know, I, I did my best to sort of put it together. And then I, talk, I called this producer, the producer I was going to be working with, Nancy Updike, who is an, a truly, truly amazing editor yeah. um, and, and was really influential on all my writing that followed both radio and print. I called her on the phone on my way to the interview because we were working really fast. And so she said, uh, you know, keep the microphone about this far from their, their mouth and watch your levels and uh, like don't let it get above this number and, and, and uh, pay attention to the sound around you. Like if there's a lawnmower, your interview isn't going to work. So uh, and then get some ambience, uh, which means like the, the, the silence of the of the, 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 the actual silence of the room as opposed to true silence so that we can use that silence to edit stuff in. I, I'm just going like mental checklist. Okay, okay, mm-hmm, okay, mm-hmm. I can do this. Um, and then I got off the phone and then I plugged all the gear together and I couldn't get any sound out of it. I'm still on my way to the first interview. And, and I called back and said, I, I've got the, the microphone, like the thing is plugged into the thing, but I don't hear anything. And um, she's like, which hole? It's like in the left hole. She's like, no, plug it into the right hole. It was, it was, this was like some world-class radio going on. Um, but one of the things I've learned from them and one of the things that we've, we try to bring to Pop-Up Magazine is they're exceptionally good co-pilots. They can, they can work with, they not only can they work with people who don't really know what they're doing, um, but they can still, you can feel like it's your story. Mm. They can help you understand how to do the things you don't know how to do and how to take the things that you're good at and do them in their format. Hmm. So I went and I, I, uh, I recorded the interview, worked with Nancy to, to make a story out of it. It went on the air. They liked it. I liked it. And, and, and really, I more than liked it. I, was, I, was, I, I loved working with them. I thought they were all so smart and nice and, 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 and just great. And, uh, and I hadn't quite gotten enough. And, and also, radio was suddenly just really interesting to me. Um, and so I told them I, I had another idea already that I thought actually would be good for this American life. And I said, well, you know, I've got another story. And if you assign it, I'll buy the gear and get Pro Tools and learn how to do this. So I, I, so I pitched that piece like a couple days after the, the, the first piece aired um, and they assigned it. And I ordered the gear and spent a few days sitting on my living room floor trying to understand how to make Pro Tools work. That and, I remember. I remember when you got the gear. <laughs> Yeah, it's it it and, and then it felt real. It felt like it was a it was a commitment because it's it's not inexpensive. I mean, it's not it's kind of like buying a computer, really. Yeah. Um, and uh, but I I really wanted to learn how to do it. Um, and I didn't know why exactly. I didn't know where it would take me. I definitely didn't think I was switching careers or becoming a radio producer. I just knew that 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 I wanted to learn more about telling stories in this way. And I liked I liked the idea of thinking about stories in a in a medium agnostic way where where uh where where you you would find a story and then think well, how should this how should this be told do i want to do i want to hear this person talk a lot maybe it's a radio story mm-hmm. um or is there something sonically interesting about this this world or do i need to do a lot of sort of print style explanation or is it it, it just seemed like a like a like a useful option like being able to tell a story a different way mm-hmm. 
Hey, it's Max. I'm going to put things on hold for just a second and uh, tell you a little bit about the people making today's show possible. First up is Howl.fm. And if you are a fan of podcasts, you have to check out Howl. The idea, basically, it's Netflix, but for podcasts. So you get a bunch of original shows, stuff you can't hear anywhere else. They've got this show called Something Cool, which is like an audio documentary series. It focuses on the brilliant careers of criminally underrated artists. And uh, it's just awesome. It's uh, all about people that you should know and don't know. The third episode of the series is on uh, a woman named Carol Cleveland. She appeared in like every Monty Python production. It's just awesome. You're going to love it. Uh, They've also got, in addition to the original stuff, the archives of some of your favorite podcasts. WTF with Mark Maron is on there. Comedy Bang Bang. How did this get made? You can go back and listen to any old episode. Here's the thing. It's all just $4.99 a month. But if you go use the code LONGFORM at checkout, so you go to howl.fm and use the code LONGFORM, you can try it out for free for a month. Netflix for podcasts, for free, for a month. Howl.fm. Use the promo code LONGFORM. Thanks very much to them for sponsoring the show. Also sponsoring the show this week is Creative Live. Creative Live offers great online classes that help people enhance or dig into new skills like photography, design, music, production, and business. You can watch classes in their massive online catalog. There's always something to stream for free and learn from the best. They've got real experts, legit experts up there. Alex Bloomberg, he was on the Long Form Podcast. He's got a class. Lewis Howes, Ryan Holiday. All these fantastic people will show you how to hone your creative skills and be the best at doing what you love. Go to creativelive.com slash longform. That's creativelive.com slash longform. You'll get 20% off any Creative Live class. Join the millions of students from around the world and make your living doing what you love. Thanks to them for sponsoring the show. And let's get back to that show. So you do a story for This American Life. You buy equipment. You're pitching them more stories or getting into that, then what happens in your freelance life after that? Well, what was really interesting was, and first of all, I the the editors at This American Life uh, that I was working with, Nancy Updike and Julie Snyder and Ira, and they're just remarkable editors. And so I, I uh, it felt like I was doing some sort of uh, intense physical training or something. Every <laughs> every time I would go through a draft, it would feel like not only was it a better draft, but I would feel like I was a better writer because I'd taken two or three things away from it that I that I wanted to store away and remember. And one of the things that was really interesting had to do with the difference in, in, in radio and print as, as, a, as, a, as a format. I was writing my first radio script, and I had to explain something. And uh, they'd, given me, they'd, they did, they'd given me advice that in radio you have to stick pretty close to the plot, and especially for, for, for This American Life, that you can't do, you know, in print you can go go off on a thousand word explanatory digression um, and then take people back to the action. It's fine. And in radio, radio, maybe you can, but you need to be a better radio writer than I am. <laughs> I was writing the script and I, would, and I wrote something like two or three paragraphs of explanation. And then I started to read it out loud to see how it sounded. And it was narcolepsy inducing. It was so boring. The sound of my voice reading sentence after sentence of explanation. I, like, I just, I could envision radios across the country turning off. <laughs> And, and so I realized how, how tight you have to be and, and also how, what that means is that I still wanted to explain all that stuff, but you had to stick it in here and there, parenthetically, asides here and there, a sentence or two. Um, and I realized you could write this script that was plot all the way through. It was all story and all character, and you could explain everything as, as you went. And so the next time I started to write a magazine article, I was thinking about sort of the standard structure 
I mean, there are all sorts of structures of a magazine article, but there's a pretty typical one where you have some sort of narrative lead, and then you go into a bit of explanation, and then mm-hmm. you have a nut graph, and then there's a line break, and then you go into a section of explanation and context, and then there's a line break, and then you're back to the action, and a lot of pieces unfold that way. And all of a sudden, after having been forced to write for radio, this thing I didn't know how to do, when I went back to print, I realized you're kind of writing the same article over and over again. You're just writing it about different things. Mm-hmm. And why are you doing that? And why are you writing this second section full of explanation when people are just getting into the story? Why do you tell them, hold on, I have to lecture for a while? Yeah. So I wondered what would happen if uh, what would happen if I tried to write a magazine piece the way I would write a radio piece, which is uh, with no with no expository section, with every section being seen or plot-based. And I really liked it. And and so uh, actually all the magazine pieces that I wrote after that, after my first experience doing radio, I pretty much stopped doing long expository sections. And I would try and stick in a little bit of context here, a little bit of context there, write parenthetically, sometimes longer, because um, you can do that. But um, my print writing completely changed. And the other thing you got from, I feel like that This American Life training was radio voice, how to do uh, interesting sounding radio voice. And I've now, I've heard you over the years give people instructions uh, for for pop-up if they're reading something, how to make it sound engaging. I can help a little bit with that. That's, uh, there, there are people who are actually good at it. Basically what I do is I try and remember what people who are actually good at it have told me. <laughs> And then pass along a slightly inferior version of that advice. That's a good uh, segue into talking about Pop-Up Magazine a bit. So give me your best, uh, what is Pop-Up Magazine? Pop-Up Magazine is a live magazine. And what that means is it's a show that that takes inspiration from the idea of a classic general interest magazine. So all kinds of different stories, all kinds of different topics, um, only it unfolds on stage. And so we bring together writers, radio producers, photographers, illustrators, documentary filmmakers, to perform new, reported, mostly nonfiction stories. And the show is about 100 minutes. Um, you come into the theater, there's a giant screen, there's a, an area with a microphone for the, the performer to stand. On the other side, there's an area for a, for a band because we, we commission live soundtracks for a lot of the pieces. So as you're telling your story, uh, uh, there, there will be musicians playing, playing uh, sort of like a movie score underneath it. And the idea really was, it was a couple of things. One was, it struck me that radio was close enough to the work that I was doing that I could go to a bar and have somebody tell me to like try to do some radio and then suddenly find myself doing radio. It, it seemed, and, and, and it was close enough that, that, that I could do that. But I didn't know any of these radio people. And I knew millions of, of print and web writers. Mm-hmm. And I thought that that's weird. And then I thought about documentary filmmakers, and I knew, I think, one documentary filmmaker because he was married to someone who wrote for The Times. And the photographers who shot my magazine stories, it was rare that I would ever even talk to them. I would never meet them. Right. And I think now especially, even then a little bit, but now especially in a, in a newsroom situation, there's more mixing. You see sort of multimedia teams. There's, there's certainly an effort to have people collaborate across different media. In the freelance feature world, then especially, and even now, the worlds are really separate. And so were the events. You know, if you go to a, a book event, you'll see a lot of writers. And you go to a film festival, and it's lots of film people. And, and I thought, what would happen if you mashed all this stuff together? I think people might be interested in, like, how it literally came about in some way. Because you had this idea, and then 
we started talking about it uh, with other people. You were sort of like, hey, what do you think of this idea? And then uh, I found this email that was like, uh, it actually subject line, a live magazine that you sent to like five <laughs> of us. Makes it easy to search for. And it's like, it's like a memo about... Uh, I don't remember this email at yeah, all. Yeah, it's like uh, the gist... A uh, very occasionally recurring evening event where writers, photographers, filmmakers, and artists present their work in progress, footnotes, spinoffs, aborted projects, original material. Like it's in many ways what you just said a minute ago, like it's actually captured in this 2007 uh, memo. And there's like things I would like it to be. My favorite part is things I'd like it not to be. <laughs> Cute, quirky, self-consciously clever or self-referential. And then there's a line that just says pretentious. <laughs> and then there's all these sort of like, what do we call it and whatever. And then I do remember sitting down over drinks and trying to figure that stuff out. Yeah. What took that from uh, just a, oh, that'd be interesting to, uh, to like, let's do this. Let's make this happen. Well, I remember one thing when we sat down over drinks, uh, you said, if it costs more than $5, none of my friends are going. <laughs> I did say that. <laughs> <laughs> Pricing is challenging. It's hard to know what to charge for stuff. <laughs> This is the sort of thing that you worry about when you're a writer that becomes an editor and a publisher, what you should charge for things. Yeah, well, it also reveals, like, my biggest fear was, like, no one will come, as opposed to the biggest fear being, like, we'll lose a bunch of money on this. Yeah, like, that I, was that was a fairly big fear of mine, because we certainly didn't raise any money for it. I think, in general, I'm really susceptible to mission creep. So, initially, we were thinking, we'll do it in a bar. Yeah. Uh, there was a bar in San Francisco where there's a lot of literary type stuff. And we thought we'd do it there because that's where things like this the go. The makeout room? The makeout room, yeah. exactly. And then we started talking to people. Oh, would you want to do this? Um, and people did. People wanted to be part of it. And a, and a bunch of them were really prominent, uh, really major photographers and really significant writers. And some of them we knew and some of them we didn't know. But there was something about the idea that, that really appealed to everyone. And especially the fact that we were saying we weren't going to record it and we weren't going to put it online. The idea that it was we were trying to make something ephemeral and that, that, that there could be something interesting at a time when, when everything is recorded and archived forever, that, that we were going to do something where you had to see it and then it was gone. And you could do a work in progress without it getting out into the world. Exactly. That, I remember that being a big part originally. Yeah, yeah. You know, we, we, we realized, we started looking at who was going to be in the show and what they were doing, and we started to think, like, this may actually, we may need something bigger than a bar. And so we rented this theater, this 350-seat theater, which now seems so tiny um, when I walk into it. But at the time, I, it was like we had rented a ballpark. It was, I could not it was even... terrifying. It was terrifying. There were, like, more than 10 rows of seats. Um, it was It was huge. And then we announced it and put tickets on sale and it sold out. And it was a really, it was a really kind of magical night, I remember, because everybody who participated in it, I think, felt like there was something there. And the audience was incredibly warm. And we, we got kegs and set them up in the lobby and people stuck around for drinks for a long time afterwards. And I remember somebody asked, like, so when are you going to do the next one? And, and I said, I... I don't know. I mean, we really only thought about this. This is as <laughs> this is like basically the plan. We've now accomplished the plan. Yeah. Um, if, if, and if there's anything more than this, it needs to be a new plan. But I know I didn't feel done with it yet. I thought there was stuff to figure out. And I immediately saw that there were other possibilities that we hadn't tried yet. Mm -hmm. And um, it felt like something that was worth doing. I mean, it was it was a hobby, to be sure. And by the end of its life as a hobby, it started to become a pretty impractical hobby yeah um, well that's part of what i want to ask about because like i feel like i was involved in it i'm very proud of being there at the beginning kind of like i take a lot from that myself but i also i think maybe having been involved in a number of different projects like you come to realize that 
it takes one person to just be like, I am going to continue to make this happen. Or maybe it's a couple people and it's actually like kind of a hell because there's like so much. I mean, this is a live event. So it's like doubled the amount of logistical shit that has to just like keep being made to happen. But you were also working. Like, was there a point trying to figure out where the point was that you thought like, I'm doing this because I really enjoy it versus like this could be something. There were a couple of things about it that felt really powerful. And one was I loved this sense of uh, community that was coming together around it, which which was powerful in its own right, but especially for me existing in a freelance life mm. where where the idea of building community was, was, was the opposite of that in a lot of ways. I mean, the freelance life was a pretty solitary life. And I was a very happy, unconflicted freelancer. I loved hanging out at my desk all day, talking on the phone and and taking my dog for a walk or going to the gym in the middle of the day. I, freelance life was great. But, but there was something really appealing about building community. And the other thing was that it, it, there was so much that I hadn't figured out yet. This is part of why I love reporting. I mean, part of reporting is trying to get less stupid as fast as you can. Um, <laughs> And, uh, and, and this felt like that. It, it, it not only did I not know how to do an event, I was really inexperienced at film. I, I had some experience with radio, and the show is very radio-influenced, so I, but I, I still had a lot to learn about radio. Um, th- it just seemed like there was so much to figure out, and it was so hard. Uh, I just couldn't resist that. Hmm. Also, the, something happened starting with the second show which was it became impossible to get tickets. Yeah. It brought down the server of the ticket it, distributor it, that we were using. It did. Every time we put up tickets. It it was just in in a way that was kind of a nightmare, but but it also it there was this there would just be this insane rush for tickets. And the the venue all of a sudden that that giant 350 seat venue started to seem like a tiny 350 seat venue. So we moved to a 900 seat venue, which again seemed like absurd. And then it was, you know, it sold out in a few minutes. It was impossible to get tickets. And the reason we kept moving to bigger venues was I didn't like the idea that my friends couldn't come. Right. You know, it's, it's were mad that they couldn't get tickets. I, I, I've never liked anything especially exclusive. You know, I, I, I don't like bars with velvet ropes. I, I, I don't like fancy guest lists. It's, uh, I like for things to be accessible. And the fact that, that tickets would sell out so instantly, my, you know, my first reaction to that is we, we, need to, we actually need to be in a bigger theater because we can't be turning away this many people. Mm-hmm. But then you move into a bigger theater and you go sit in the back row and you realize that stage is pretty far away. The show has to get bigger. And so this thing, it, it, in, in a way, moving into bigger theaters so that, so that people could come and so the community could grow required a more ambitious show which required us to keep learning things we didn't know how to do and to start borrowing a little bit from theater mm-hmm. and to start making more elaborately multimedia pieces and to think about how do we use music and, and how, do we, how do we make it a performance, actually, like a, a real performance. Maybe describe a, a representative sort of pop-up piece for yeah. you. It doesn't have to be your favorite, but it could be your favorite. Like give, give someone an idea of what they, would, what they see. So I can talk about one. We just we just did a show. We just went on our first ever national tour. You know, we we got to the point in in San Francisco where we're performing it for two nights for about forty two hundred people. We expanded, started doing shows in L.A. and uh, and and so this fall for the first time we took it on a national tour. So we went to two shows in San Francisco, Los Angeles, Portland, Seattle, Chicago, and then uh, and then a show in Brooklyn here. And so uh, one of the pieces, the last piece in last night's show, was by Jenna Wortham, the fantastic New York Times magazine writer, longtime New York Times columnist. 
she did a story about memory and about our relationship with the devices. Uh, it was a story about a guy who, um, because of a, of a traumatic injury, lost the ability to reliably form memories. And so what he started doing was was essentially outsourcing his memories to, to the technology around him. He would store information about his family on his phone. He would use GPS to get around. He would take pictures of notes and, and store them in Evernote and, and, um, and keep a constant archive of all the things that he knew that he would forget. And the thing that struck Jenna about this story, and the thing that struck me too, was the idea that in a way he's a more extreme version of all of us because we all outsource our, our memory to our phones, uh, you know, in all sorts of uh, occasionally embarrassing ways where right. you can't remember, you look up on Google Maps something that's five blocks from your apartment um, because you can't remember exactly where it is. So this is a piece, you could tell this piece on the radio, you could do it in a magazine, but we were, we were just thinking a lot about this feeling of the story and We'd been following for a while this really innovative shadow theater company in Chicago, Manual Cinema. And they make what really looks like movies out of shadows. They, they line up a row of overhead projectors and have these elaborate screens that they shuffle over them. And then they have actors in front of the, the, in front of the screen that they're casting light on. And so they put actors in these, in these drawn sets in a way. And then, and then that gets projected onto a large screen. And so we introduced them to Jenna and they started to work together to create a representation of this guy's world to tell his story in a movie made of shadows, mm-hmm. uh, which which somehow, for the idea of of of, of memory as this is this very slippery, hard to capture thing, there's something about illustrating that with shadows that felt powerful. Mm-hmm. And so they worked together with our uh, the uh, band that we collaborate with, the Magic Magic Orchestra. And so the way the story was told on stage was was Jenna narrating a story for about 13 or 14 minutes while you watched a movie of this guy's life made out of shadows while the band performed this really beautiful score that that uh, manual cinema had composed and it really uh it was a beautiful story yeah it's a unique experience well one of the things i love about about making live stories for pop-up magazine is that there's not like a rut that you're going to fall into and there's not a rut that you're rebelling against. There's, there's, there isn't, there just isn't much of a template. And so when you start talking about a story, and you think, well, what is this? How are we going to tell it? Should we commission some animation? Should there be something that happens live on stage? Should we hide something in the theater? Should, is there, is there music? Is there not music? Um, you're inventing each story from scratch without, without really guidelines. One of my favorite things about pop-up is the idea of moments of liveness we uh, yeah describing like something that can only happen in a live so my favorite i'll tell you my favorite one ever which was uh jen khan did a story about her father getting into weightlifting as an older man and like it being something that kind of like really kept him going and kept him energized and then he won like the national championship for his age group and then he kind of like lost his way because there wasn't any uh there wasn't he sort of like lost the thing he was like focused on and then he found out there's a world championships then he went to the world championships it was an incredible story and then he just walked on stage at the end of the story and people just gave him a standing ovation yeah it was amazing that to me felt like it's a story that could appear in all these different ways but like that is a moment of magic that cannot exist except for this and it's also something you know i think people who've who've spent a life in theater know this i had no idea but there's there's something really powerful about being 
in a dark room full of people together. Um, you know that at, at that story, you know you look you looked around, all sorts of people were crying in this way that was partly because the story was so moving and and partly because there was this immediateness to it. You know, seeing him right there, seeing him come out when you weren't expecting it, seeing the way that Jen, the the writer, seeing seeing the way she was with her father on stage, it really moved the audience. You could see that everybody was feeling something together, and they were going to remember it. So you you've kept pop up going, and it grew into this thing. It grows into bigger and bigger theaters, and then in the way that you described before, of like then taking on something you knew nothing about, you were like, well, why don't we also start a magazine attached to this? Uh, live magazine, magazine, an actual magazine, and why in God's name did you let, decide to do that? <laughs> well, it started really after this incredibly ambitious pop-up show that we all did together, this collaboration with Beck and McSweeney's, um, which was Beck had just uh, made an album that was all sheet music, and he wanted to have some sort of event to celebrate the launch of it. And part of the idea behind this album was that back in the days when sheet music was popular music, before recorded music, there wasn't the definitive version of a song the way you have now. So a, a popular song would be released in sheet music, and, and everybody would sing it a little bit differently, and everybody mm-hmm. would play it a little bit differently, and people would perform for each other. And so uh, we worked with Beck and with McSweeney's, who published the, the this album as this really beautiful book to make a special issue of Pop-Up Magazine that was half live music of musicians, in a lot of cases collaborating with musicians that, that they wouldn't normally work with, to perform very different versions of all these songs, and then half stories about music, mm-hmm. you know, how it works and what it means to us and, and where it comes from. And, and, and the show involved probably 100 people on stage. We brought out a live orchestra at one point for about five minutes um there were we had to run it on a 96 channel soundboard um that was can i just say as an aside that was the moment for me where i had moved to new york and this thing that i was like this is a fun project that i do i'm gonna go back and check out this new show and like participate in it a little bit and it was just like we had had celebrities for our world, like Michael Pollan did it and that sort of thing. And then it came back, when I came back, it was just like genuine celebrities and a massive production and like soundscapes and just like huge orchestra. And it just seemed like, my God, this has now turned into something uh, where there's like backstage, people have different rooms, green rooms backstage. Do you remember what I said about Mission Creep? <laughs> yeah. That show actually, the, the initial idea from that show for that show was seemed totally practical and doable. Um, and then it, it grew into this uh, crazy thing, which remarkably was great. It, it, it went off without a hitch and everybody loved it and everybody was happy. And But there was this moment where, you know, the end of the night is not glamorous. Uh, you know, everybody had gone home, basically, and I was walking around backstage cleaning up empties um, from 100 performers. And I went out on stage, probably it must have been one thirty in the morning, and just stood there on the stage in this empty 2,700-seat theater. It's totally dark except for this one light they have on the stage so that you don't trip and fall off the stage. And I was looking around and thinking, you can't keep doing this. This is crazy. You need to stop or it needs to become something else. And so I I thought about that for, for a good couple of weeks. It's, you know, this is no longer a hobby. Is it going to evolve or, or, or do you decide that it's had a great run and it's, it's time to try something else that you don't know how to do? <laughs> um, 
And so I decided to do both of those things. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, so one of the things that had always been really powerful to me about Pop-Up Magazine was the idea that it happened at night. Mm -hmm. Because I think that, you know, media companies spend so much time and energy and money fighting for these tiny slivers of your day. You're standing in line for coffee and you have maybe 15 to 20 seconds before you're next. And so you read three paragraphs of some story that you picked up on Twitter. And Mm -hmm. then then you go on with your day and you don't remember it. But nights are different. You, You spend time in a different way. And I thought when we were making Pop-Up Magazine, we could make a bid for people's attention in a different sort of way. I mean, nighttime is when you sit down and turn on Netflix and watch four episodes of something. You know, you can actually spend meaningful time and remember stuff. And it, it, in order to capture that, it has to feel like leisure, though. It has, I mean, to, it has feel to feel like, like something that you're doing for Absolutely. enjoyment. Absolutely. You know, and one of the things we talked about from the beginning was we did not, we didn't want Pop-Up Magazine shows to feel like conferences or, 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 or again, we didn't want them to feel like homework, things where you go to to become smarter, but, but you know, not for fun. Um, you know, we wanted to be competing with, with TV and live music and movies and, and, um, and to be in that world. So the, the time of day was always, was always really interesting to me. And the other time of day that I was really drawn to is the weekend for the same, for the same reason. It's, it's a time when you can, when you maybe can spend a couple hours doing something. And, you know, not to be too philosophical about it, but I was just thinking about how, you know, you, you think about you think about your life and your life ends up being made up of the things that you remember because you forget most of it. But the things that you remember become your life. And if you can make something that someone remembers, then you're participating in their life. And there's something uh, there's something really meaningful about that. It feels like something really worth doing or worth trying to do. And so I'd, I'd wondered for a while, what would it mean if you had a, what would it mean for somebody to have a nights and weekends media company? People can read stuff whenever they want. They could find it during the daytime. But, but what would it mean if you were just making stuff for nights and weekends? And this was sort of kicking around in the back of my mind when I was deciding what, what should happen with Pop-Up Magazine. And I started thinking about, well, what could you make for the weekend? You know, nights out are great. What could you make for weekends at home? And around that time, I saw that the LA Times was shutting down its Sunday magazine. That was like two iterations, one or two iterations past the one where you wrote The Invisibles right. they'd story. Been, they'd they been kept trying, rebooting it. Yeah, exactly. They'd been trying for a while. I don't know anything about the the internal workings of it, but but they'd been trying for a while to figure out what's what's a Sunday magazine that works for them. And and it's tough. if you're If you're a newspaper... And you're not the New York Times. You're not a, a global, national paper. So it's just hard to do a magazine. And it's not, it's not necessarily even clear that it makes sense for you to do it. You're, you're, you're a machine that's built to make another thing. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and so if you really want a magazine, you almost have to have a second machine. So it, but it occurred to me that, first of all, I thought it probably made sense that they probably weren't set up to do a magazine. And then the second thought was that they should just distribute somebody else's magazine. Um, and that you could say that for... A, a lot of the papers on the West Coast, none of which were really in the magazine business. And it occurred to me that, that newspapers have this fairly straightforward business model around insertion where you can pay them X amount of money and then they will distribute something. And in most cases, it's a, it's a sales flyer or something like that. But I wondered if you could make, uh, make a really great national quality magazine and then pay for insertion and build up a quick print audience uh, relatively quickly and inexpensively. And then, and then make a pitch to national advertisers because print advertising rates are still 
are still pretty good. They're not great if you're uh, if you're a giant company and you remember what print advertising rates were 15 years ago. You've probably gone through three or four rounds of layoffs. Yeah. But if you're starting from scratch, and if you can keep your costs down, I thought you could probably launch a really great magazine this way, and it would in the the immediate print revenue would give us time to be more patient with digital um, and not immediately right out of the gate have to go for maximum possible traffic, uh, maximum possible social reach. We could we could try and build a brand around really beautiful stories and beautiful photography. Yeah. And so I reported it, frankly. I, yeah. I, I didn't tell anybody. Um, I approached it like I would it was if it was a difficult magazine article where I just started talking to people. I started trying to look at numbers, understand the economics of it. I did that for probably four months at least, uh, not telling anybody until I felt like I'd wrapped my head around it and, it and it seemed to me like it worked. And so then I teamed up with a co-founder, Chaz Edwards, who'd, who'd come out of the business side of publishing and we uh, started a media company which would publish two things. And one of them was Pop-Up Magazine, a live magazine, and one of them would be this new uh, weekend magazine called the California Sunday Magazine, um, which would be a, a national magazine of the West Coast covering California, the West, Asia, and Latin America, yeah. and would launch with a large circulation print magazine in these newspapers, and then also have a, a, a really uh, a beautiful uh, web presence. Yeah, I remember that when you were looking into it, and how, in, in contrast to Pop-Up, which was sort of like friends getting together and then just deciding to do something, and kind of like, let's give it a shot, the stakes are so much higher when you're going to get investors, you're going to start producing a print product. How comfortable did you have to feel about how it was going to be successful before starting it? I reported it really rigorously. I'm very comfortable diving into things I don't know how to do and risking failure when I'm the only one with something to lose. Mm -hmm. You know, doing this was going to mean raising money. We were talking about launching a, a national scale magazine with a with a print component with a 400,000-ish circulation print product, we were talking about launching it quickly and cheaply by the standards of large New York media companies. It still was going to cost a lot of money. And I wanted to make sure that that I could sit down across the table from people and say that this is going to work because of X, Y, and Z. By the time we went out to raise money, I felt pretty confident that we could make a go at it. And the process of raising money also was 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 helpful because you it's in some ways it's it's like being edited. You know, if somebody's sitting down with you and they're deciding whether they're going to make a bet on this idea, and so they're going to ask as many questions as they can think of to try and poke holes in it, to try and figure out why it's going to fail. And most of the time, if you've done your homework, you have good answers for those questions. But sometimes you don't, and then you have to go home and think, well, what what is what is the answer to that? Is is there something I haven't thought of? And you sometimes have to do more research, and then. And the next time you go out for a meeting, you do have an answer to that question. Um, and your idea is better. How comfortable are you being on sort of this side of the ledger that you're on now in with the whole company and also just like Pop-Up and, and California Sunday in terms of going from a freelance producer of stories to someone who not only assigns stories and kills stories, but sort of like has people working for them, has this like accrual of responsibility towards these entities and all of the people associated with them. One of the things that writing magazine features teaches you is is a healthy respect for all that you don't know. Not everyone, I would say, takes that lesson. But <laughs> I, <laughs> I mean, I think you just, when you're doing something complicated, especially, you realize 
in the amount of time I'm going to spend on this, it's two months, it's four months, it's eight months, however long you're going to spend, y- you, you can learn a lot, but there will be so much that you don't know. And so you have to rely on other people to explain things. You have to understand the limits of what you can say confidently and, and then stop. And, uh, and so I felt that way going into this project. There was, there was going to be so much I couldn't understand. And so what that meant is that I needed to hire really well. Um, I needed to surround myself with with just exceptional people. I had ideas about what I thought would be uh, what I thought would be the team that could make something really great. And a lot of it was informed by by our work together on Pop Up, where everybody was very good at their jobs. Everybody got along really well. Um, everybody would would challenge each other, but but in a very um, in a very productive, sane, calm way. Um, it wasn't a, it wasn't a chaotic dramatic thing it, it it felt like we were all we were all working hard and pushing in the same direction do you feel that you are a good manager <laughs> on a good day adequate i ask for leave because i feel like uh i think when i worked just only as a writer i kind of like uh easily make fun of management strategies management books and uh, the whole idea of it, I didn't even work in an organization at all for over a decade. And then being put in that environment, you realize like that's actually one of the hardest things. So I would say it's one of the most anxiety producing things that I've ever done. I think about the background that I bring to the magazine, being a writer, making a live show. It's an unconventional background, but that means also that there are pluses that, that, that come with that. Um, one of the things we talked about in the beginning was was the importance of being a writer-run company. So when we made our contracts, we tried to make contracts that were really fair, that reflected um, some of the frustrations that, that writers feel sometimes with contracts um, uh, in ways that, that we thought didn't make us weaker as a company that made us stronger. Um, we talked about not wanting to have any sort of house voice. I think sometimes uh, some publications really edit people towards a particular way of telling stories and mm. towards a towards a particular voice and we there was there was a we knew that there was a, a scope of stuff that we would do and there were some limitations we wanted to be very story driven we weren't going to do much that was really argument driven we wanted to really be really about narrative you know there's some character in the world and things happen but beyond that we wanted to make sure that writers felt that they could tell stories in different ways I think at a time when people are really worried about the future of certain types of media and magazines and things like that, to sort of like inject this brand new print, ambitious, big magazine, it feels like it places upon itself this burdens of people wanting to know, like, is this for real? Is this going to succeed? Do you feel like you are have those burdens on you that like, that it's sort of because it launched big and it's meant to be big and it's also like old world in this certain way because it's print? You have to, to to grapple with that in some way. I think that I'm too busy to worry too much about that. Yeah. Maybe that 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 sounds like a, a an evasive answer, but but there's so I'm so conscious of wanting to always just do a better job than I did yesterday. That means personally learning to be a better editor, learning to be a better manager, learning to be a better boss. Um, it also means making a better magazine. Whenever we do something that we're really proud of, and we're really proud of where the magazine is right now, we also, we, we just want it to keep getting better. Um, and so if there are expectations, uh, if, there are, if there are hopes for the magazine or fears, they're kind of drowned out in a way by, by our own expectations. 
we listen to the audience very carefully. Uh, it's something we want to do even more of, and uh, we want to learn from them, and we want to uh, uh, we want to be smart about about the way we gather feedback. It isn't a matter of shutting out the world. It's just that in a way, all you can do. I'm so tempted to use sports metaphors here. So uh, sports metaphors here, but but all you can all all you can really do. Just take it one game at a time. Is that exactly. what you're going to say? I mean, it's, that's what I'm going to say. It's 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 like uh, I'm 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 going to be like Bill Belichick up here. It's it's just uh, 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 just say it's all about the next game. We're worried about the next game. You have you have to worry about the next issue. You have to worry about the next show. You have to try things you haven't done before. You have to keep making it better. Um, you have to keep uh, 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 stretching. And if you do that, good things will happen. All right, Doug. Thanks for coming on the podcast. Thank you for having me. That's it for this week's Longform Podcast. Thanks to my old friend Doug for coming in. I'm Evan Ratliff. I'm the co-host of the Longform Podcast. My other co-hosts are Max Linsky and Aaron Lammer. Our editor is Jenna Weiss-Berman. Our intern is Molly Bain. And thanks, as always, to our sponsors, which this week were the Smart People Podcast, Howl.fm, MailChimp, as always, and Creative Live. Creative Live, you can get 20% off any Creative Live class if you go to creativelive.com slash longform. We'll be taking next week off, and we'll see you in 2016. Support for this podcast comes from Smartwater. Want to get a little more from every sip? Smartwater Alkaline doesn't just taste crisp and pure. It's loaded with everything you need to perform at your best, whether you're running marathons or boardroom meetings. Elevate how you hydrate and pick up a Smartwater Alkaline today. To learn more, visit drinksmartwater.com. Right now, businesses are facing tough choices. Do you cut costs or drive growth? Solve for today or build for tomorrow? Do you satisfy your shareholders or satisfy your customers? The answer is yes. You don't have to choose. With the intelligent platform for digital business from ServiceNow, you can say yes to unifying your existing systems and yes to accelerating growth. Visit servicenow.com to see how we can help you put yes to work. The world works with ServiceNow.